Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us. Now, we've got a special guest this week, and uh, the reason I've brought this guest on is because there is a situation which is fully developed now, and we're talking about Syria. Now, if we turn the clock back a couple of years, um, we all know where we were at that time. We were pretty much facing August 2013. Uh, British Parliament put a vote up for military action, and luckily at the time it was defeated in Parliament on the floor. And then the United States Congress convened a few weeks later, and the President of the United States, Barack Obama, did put down uh, uh, an option, as it were, as the best way to describe it, most bizarre thing, an option for an authorization of force which expires at some point in 2016. And at any time, he can exercise that option. It's almost like a stock uh, a stock purchase put. But th- this is what happened. And here we are now, this week. Uh, they've announced the first the safe zone last week, which is a euphemism for a no-fly zone. And just today, it's announced, um, or this week, uh, rather, it's announced that uh, the U.S. manned flights taking off from Turkey have begun in order to put down ISIS, we're told, in northern Syria. So I brought a very special guest uh, who's going to join us. He's joining us from Japan, and his name, many of you are familiar with his work and will have seen him uh, on various other programs and his own program, which is the Corbett Report. His name is James Corbett. James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Patrick. Now, uh, James, uh, what we're uh, the reason I got you on, James, is because I I sort of look at you as someone who knows a lot about some of the uh, more subtle inside plays in this region. Specifically, I know you've got a lot of knowledge about Turkey, and I think Turkey is a major, important key point in this uh, pivot uh, on northern Syria that we're looking at right now. So that's why I've got you on, James. And this is, um, I'm very concerned about what I'm looking at right now because uh, throughout history, when you see any kind of a no-fly zone, when you see a buffer zone, and I'm looking at situations in Yugoslavia in the 90s, I'm looking at Iraq in the early 2000s, I'm looking at Libya in 2010, and we know what the sequence of events is that comes directly after a no-fly zone or a buffer zone. That's why I'm concerned, and I really think it's important to try to break this down uh, in its detail so that what, to know what we're looking at here. When you saw this announcement a couple of weeks ago for the safe zone, what were you thinking, James? Well, unfortunately, I was thinking pretty much what it's turned out to be, which is being interpreted by Turkey to mean an anti-Kurdish zone. And basically, Turkey has used this as an excuse to go after the Kurds in the region and don't even seem to be concentrating on ISIS at all, which could have been predicted. In fact, uh, Tony Cartolucci over at Land Destroyer Report had a report out a a while ago pointing to a 2012 Brookings uh, Institution memo, Middle East Memo Number 21, assessing options for regime change, where they talked about this... uh, exact idea, the idea of creating safe havens and humanitarian corridors, which would have to be backed up by limited military power. And then it says this would, of course, fall short of U.S. goals for Syria and could preserve Assad in power. From that starting point, however, it is possible that a broad coalition with the appropriate international mandate could add further coercive action to its efforts. So my interpretation of this agreement is basically that the United States was looking to get what they've always been looking to get out of Syria, which is to overthrow the Assad government first and foremost. And Turkey is do- doing exactly what it wants to do, which is to try to uh, to eliminate some of the Turkish groups in the area. And the only thing that's really surprised me about this is the fact that this has, in fact, become the dominant narrative 
even in the mainstream U.S. Uh, media right now. So, for example, even Fox News was recently reporting a senior U.S. Uh, military official is now complaining that Turkey basically tricked uh, the U.S., or that's what, uh, what he, the way he's framing it, um, by, by using ISIS as kind of a hook. Oh, we'll get ISIS, sure, and then immediately going and attacking Kurdish uh, PKK installments in northern Iraq. And basically, this is, this is the, by far the dominant narrative uh, that I've been seeing portrayed in the Western media about this, is basically that this is all just Turkey going after the Kurds. So it looks like there may be a genuine rift forming here between uh, U.S. and Turkey over this issue, and uh, to the extent that that actually breaks down the agreement and perhaps uh, puts a sort of a monkey wrench in the works of the, the plans of these schemers, I think that might be for the, the greater good of the, the people of the region. Okay, so so James, you're saying that even Fox News has picked up on that point. That's that's surprising to me that they would have picked up on that nuance. It's surprising to me too because one would expect that there would be some tolerance for this amongst the uh, the U.S. Uh, geopolitical circles that are hammering out these agreements. I mean, I don't think it should have been so surprising for them that Turkey would be using this to go uh, after the PKK. So uh, I'm not sure why this is becoming the dominant narrative, but perhaps it represents a genuine rift in, uh, in between U.S. and Turkey over this issue. But the, the obvious thing to me here, James, is, and of course, I'm just sort of applying basic logic here, uh, one of the most effective um, deterrents to ISIS in northern Iraq, especially, and also in northeastern Syria, but mainly in northern Iraq, has been the Kurdish forces, the, the Peshmerga, and there's elements of that that are PKK affiliated, I would imagine, but seeing that they're the one of the greatest deterrents, most effective deterrents through that region against ISIS, it would seem to me counterproductive by Turkey to be using this new safe zone as a kind of smokescreen to sort of carry out their own sort of vendetta uh, against the uh, Kurdish uh, PKK. Well, it, it, yes. I mean, from that perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense, but we have to keep the uh, the PKK issue in the Turkish domestic uh, sphere in mind as well. And basically, there's been some movement on that front since a 2013 uh, ceasefire agreement between the, the PKK rebels and the Turkish government. That has been shattered by some recent attacks. Uh, people might remember last month there was an explosion in Suruk in southeastern Turkey, uh, basically a bunch of the uh, Federation of Socialist youth, I believe they're called, were planning a, uh, an expedition down to Kobani across the border there into Syria to, uh, to basically help in reconstruction of that city. And uh, as they were mounting their expedition and having a little press conference, uh, there were some explosions, killed 32 uh, pro-Kurdish activists and uh, injured, I, I think, up to 100 others. And immediately, I mean, there was a lot of questions about this incident and how it was how it was brought about or allowed to happen in a heavily uh, controlled area of the country where there's a lot of Turkish intelligence running around. So there was a lot of questions from the uh, the Kurdish factions about this. And in response, uh, the PKK have started a wave of violence as it's being portrayed in the media. They uh, they killed two Turkish police officers in direct response to the Suriq attack. And so far, the death toll um, of Turkish security forces is estimated to be about 20 uh, members. So there has been a ratcheting up of that tension um, specifically since the time of that attack, which is pretty interesting in and of itself. The attack uh, certainly does allow Turkey to say, well, there's there's this pressing security need for us to deal with ISIS, quote unquote, because they're killing the Tur- uh, the, uh, the the Kurds, and uh, that's that. And then we saw the uh, the hammering out of that agreement with Washington the very next week. So I think there may be some elements there for uh, for at least the possibility that this was a false flag, where at any rate is certainly being used for propagandistic purposes by Turkey, and it ra- ratchets up the tensions with the PKK. And an interesting movement there has just occurred, where we've seen the changeover of the chief of staff of the Turkish army. Uh, you have retiring General Nekdet Ozil on his way out, and Ozil was apparently more dovish than his replacement, who is going to be uh, the um, uh, land forces commander Hulusi Akar, 
who is seen as much more hawkish than Ozil, and uh, specifically on the on the Kurdish issue. And he, uh, according to the, uh, DefenseNews.com, he has, quote, extensive NATO experience. So I think we know which direction the Turkish army is going to be heading in, and he took over on August 5th. So we've definitely seen, I think, some of that influence playing out in these attacks. And the Defense News article that uh, that talks about this changeover specifically brings up the history of uh, not only the Turkish army in relation to the government and sort of un- uneasy relations and Erdogan trying to wrest some more power from the, the Turkish army in Turkey, but also references the fact that there have been three staged coups since 1960 um, by the, the Turkish uh, armed forces. So I don't know. There's some interesting developments there. And now that there's a moment of political instability in Turkey with uh, the inability to form a majority government, meaning there will probably be an early election, maybe even this October, uh, I think there's some political instability. And there may be room for a strongman, a new chief of staff of the Turkish army to come in and try to take more political control over the country. So I think Turkey is really on a knife edge in a number of different ways here. And we may be seeing which, which way it's going to fall by the way they're trying to interpret this uh, ISIL free zone. Well, that's you know going back to the bombing, and I look at the timing of obviously this uh, all of a sudden this spate of uh, supposed uh, PKK bombings. Uh, the timing of it, of course, you can't ignore it. It doesn't seem like a coincidence at all to me. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself who benefits. Certainly, you know the K- Kurdish, uh, whatever their aspirations are, nationalist or whatever. The Kurdish people are being were elevated in a very positive light over the last twelve months because of the the fact that they're effective resistance against the uh, miscreant uh, ISIS uh, terrorist brigades. Okay, so they, there's no benefit whatsoever for them to start uh, carrying out bombings, and it, th- this brings me back, James, to looking at the IRA situation putting isis aside you know the the ira versus the british government or the ulster loyalists and it just in the, the the timing whenever there was a sort of the peace process was moving forward the bombs would come uh the same you could say with the palestinian and the israeli peace process okay so and it just it's beyond it's beyond me now being a skeptic when i look at these the instigation comes, the, the, the gladio moment arrives, and all of a sudden, everything goes and spirals down into sort of a, a vortex of negativity after that. Yes, yes. And the, I, I completely agree with that assessment, and uh, obviously gladio moment is a well-chosen phrase there, because of course this does relate to the, uh, the Operation Gladio and its subsequent Gladio B that um, people, I hope, will have... Uh, seen Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com exposing and talking about. Uh, And on that note, I just had the chance uh, just this week to talk to Sibel Edmonds about what's uh, what's been happening in Turkey, and she was in the region at the time of this Surik explosion and was talking to uh, a person connected in the, the Turkish military who was telling her that since April, they've been on a six-month uh, order to basically get prepared for further military action, and we're told to expect uh, incidents in July that would uh, ra- ramp things up. So, um, so I, I think that we definitely have reasons to to think that the Turkish intelligence and/or military apparatus was either behind that explosion in Zurich, or at least, uh, at the very least, allowed it to happen. And uh, again, it it does come at just the perfect time. Uh, to demonize uh, the Kurds who, as you say, were being hailed as the the strongest resistance for ISIS, uh, certainly there in northern Iraq and in areas of Syria as well. So what the, the, the general pattern I'm seeing here, James, is, and I've seen this over the last 12 months, anybody who is effective at fighting ISIS, and I'll name them off, the uh, Syrian army has been effective at fighting terrorism within their borders, okay? They've been demonized They've tried. They've they've attempted to hamstring Damascus because they are fighting terrorist foreign terrorists in their own country. The Kurds have been effective. They've been fighting mostly foreign fighters, absolute terrorists, bands of privateers, is how I describe ISIS, sand pirates, the Barbary pirates of of the sand. Okay. The other is the uh, Shiite militias led by Iranian 
military commanders in Iraq. All three of those people have either been attacked, demonized, or uh, proclaimed illegitimate by the Western powers over the last 12 months. So anybody fighting ISIS effectively immediately is marginalized. That's exactly right. And just another example of that, uh, we could look to just stories that came out this week. For example, we saw that there was some uh, some trading of fire between rebels and the Syrian government in Damascus. So, of course, it's reported as the Syrian military killing 37 people in rebel-held areas. And uh, that's the, the sort of the main takeaway headline in the Western mainstream media neglecting the fact that it was in fact an artillery strike by the rebels killing 13 people that was uh, that what uh, that instigated that that incident and that the Syrian army was responding to that uh, killing of 13 people uh, those types of i mean that type of just basic trick is played over and over and over in the western media to continually demonize Assad and the Syrian military forces even as you say as they're being one of the most effective forces fighting against ISIS because as we know i mean as i'm sure that your listeners know by now isis really is just the the really the excuse for uh for everything that's going on in the region right now and that the further in uh, the furtherance of that original goal of toppling the assad government and there have been some interesting moves on that front in the last uh, week or two with uh putin going on a type of mission to create this anti-isis coalition that will include uh, everyone, including the Syrian military and the uh, the rebels and uh, and a bunch of other states in the region, that's the the plan. And an interesting movement along that uh, that idea came this week, where you had this uh, ceasefire between the Syrian military and certain Al Qaeda uh, connected rebels in certain uh, Syrian towns. A forty eight hour ceasefire that was negotiated by uh, all reports, but it was mediated by Turkey and Iran working together to mediate that deal, which is pretty surprising, pretty interesting, people coming from different uh, different sides of that table and with different aims, but coming together to negotiate a ceasefire. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see if that if anything really develops from that, and we've, we've seen Syrian rebels heading to Moscow this week to talk to Moscow about this plan, but apparently they're saying anything that involves the Syrian government they're not going to be involved in, which is the whole point of the plan, so we'll have to see how that ultimately develops. But, but there are some interesting ideas coming out, and uh, perhaps ideas that completely bypass the, the sort of Washington nexus uh, of this this uh, unfolding agenda. Well, you're, you're talking about this, the Syrian rebels are going for talks, like all all twelve of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. I, I, I was surprised to see that, but you know, it doesn't surprise me on one level because uh, Sergey Lavrov has, from the beginning, has played this straight down the line. Okay, and the reason is is because Russia does not have the sort of, uh, you know, agendas that Washington has or that London has uh, in in their sort of nation-building machinations and and map-making exercises, okay? Or that Tel Aviv has, let's not forget. We'll get to them in a minute, by the way. (laughs) But, so, I'm not surprised Lavrov's playing it straight down the line. That's what they did with the chemical weapons uh, charges back in uh, late uh, August 2013, and of course Lavrov came with the solution. He took that quip soundbite out of the corner of Kerry's mouth and turned it into uh, a, an international plan, a solution, uh, which diffused temporarily diffused that situation there, but essentially didn't diffuse anything. What he really did was he sidetracked and railroaded Washington's plan for uh, to use a false flag as leverage for a military intervention. Exactly right. And uh, uh, Moscow really pulled a rabbit out of the hat with that, uh, uh, that, I think, a masterstroke of negotiation where they came in and said, well, we'll get rid of the, the chemical weapons altogether, we'll oversee it. Okay, case closed. And and that was, I think, brilliant. So the idea that perhaps they could form some sort of truly broad anti-ISIS coalition, you never know. But I, again, I think that ISIS is really just being used as the sort of empire as uh, these Islamic extremists always have been and always presumably will be used. And uh, we see, of course, the expansion now of that sort of empire into Afghanistan to destabilize the peace process there and really uh, pointing towards China and Iran and other groups that are seeming to play a bigger role in Afghanistan security as the uh, U.S. prepares for its quote-unquote withdrawal. So unfortunately, I don't think ISIS is going to go away anytime soon because the groups that 
are supporting it don't want it to go away anytime soon. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. So, now, w- interesting, we're on the subject of uh, chemical weapons and uh, what else comes out today. But uh, a report, uh, Pentagon sources tell CBS News, obviously this has already cascaded through all the other major media outlets, but... Uh, our reports are credible that Islamic State uh, ISIS miscreants uh, have used uh, mustard gas against Kurdish fighters in Iraq. Now, I I've, I tend to believe it's uh, the the reports about the chlorine uh, munitions, uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But so so this is and this is what we were saying back in March 2013. We were one of the first uh, 21st Century Wire did a report about the chemical weapons attacks in Aleppo, that's when they were building the sort of crossing the red line uh, narrative with these little chemical weapons attacks, which they were constantly trying to pin on the Syrian army. And it was found, at least we found, by translating uh, some Arabic um, reports that the uh, Front Victory, which is a precursor to the al-Nusra Front, was doing chlorine bombs in Iraq, uh, quite a few years ago, so they had they took over a chlorine factory in Aleppo and did these crude sort of chlorine bombs with chlorine industrial chlorine tablets and so there 's your chemical weapons attacks from the rebels or the terrorist uh, uh, enclaves, whatever you want to call them from the opposition, okay, not from the Syrian government and so they have the means they have the experience they 've done it before, so clearly there would be my first suspect if I was investigating and lo and behold what do we see today isis in homemade makeshift chemical weapons well this should to a logical person this should bring you back to the original false flag attempt in damascus in 2013 in august and that whole basis so the basis james is what i'm saying the basis for obama's authorization of force which he is effectively exercising right now, is based on a lie that the Syrian government launched chemical weapons attacks against its own people in August 2013. That's my point. That's exactly right. And, of course, backed up by those well-known conspiracy theorists at MIT that did uh, a report way back in, uh, I think, December of 2013, calling calling out the, the propaganda and showing that the the chemical weapons actually sourced from rebel-held areas that they did not source from where the uh, U.S. government was trying to blame uh, pit the blame, which I think we already knew, but uh, it was just interesting to see that confirmed by MIT. Well, I- ISIS has absolutely you know helped us with this uh, latest uh, makeshift chemical weapons attacks uh, against Kurdish fighters. But I'm going to play a clip now. To turn the clock back uh, just to show you that. Uh, these events and these things we're talking about completely obliterates the claims by the U.S. Secretary of State uh, exactly two years ago, uh, more or less two years ago. And I'm going to play this clip, James, from John Kerry. I'm I'm sure you've heard this or something similar before, but uh, we're going to go ahead and listen to this. This is John Kerry doing an absolute eulogy uh, to the world stage about how Bashar al-Assad has definitely done this, that, and the other with chemical weapons against his own people. And that was going to be the basis for a major military offensive against the nation of Syria. Listen to this. So what do we really know that we can talk about? Well, we know that the Assad regime has the largest chemical weapons program in the entire Middle East. We know that the regime has used those weapons multiple times this year and has used them on a smaller scale, but still it has used them against its own people, including not very far from where last Wednesday's attack happened. We know that the regime was specifically determined to rid the Damascus suburbs of the opposition, and it was frustrated that it hadn't succeeded in doing so. We know that for three days before the attack, the Syrian regime's chemical weapons personnel were on the ground, in the area, making preparations. And we know that the Syrian regime elements were told to prepare for the attack 
by putting on gas masks and taking precautions associated with chemical weapons. We know that these were specific instructions. We know where the rockets were launched from and at what time. We know where they landed and when. We know rockets came only from regime-controlled areas and went only to opposition-controlled or contested neighborhoods. And we know, as does the world, that just 90 minutes later, all hell broke loose in the social media. With our own eyes, we have seen the thousands of reports from 11 separate sites in the Damascus suburbs. All of them show and report victims with breathing difficulties, people twitching with spasms, coughing, rapid heartbeats, foaming at the mouth, unconsciousness, and death. And we know it was ordinary Syrian citizens who reported all of these horrors. And just as important, we know what the doctors and the nurses who treated them didn't report. Not a scratch, not a shrapnel wound, not a cut, not a gunshot wound. We saw, saw rows of dead lined up in burial shrouds, the white linen unstained by a single drop of blood. Instead of uh, being tucked safely in their beds at home, we saw rows of children lying side by side, sprawled on a hospital floor, all of them dead from Assad's gas and surrounded by parents and grandparents who had suffered. So that was, uh, that was John Kerry, okay, and he was waxing lyrical about these chemical weapons attacks. Uh, evoking the children, uh, we, rows of children. And my favorite quote, James, from that particular speech from John Kerry, my first question is obviously, who writes this stuff? But my favorite quote is, moments later, all hell broke loose on social media, and we saw pictures of this and that. So that was the first time social media was evoked as a kind of pretext for war, which I thought, you know, one of the first YouTube wars potentially um but <laughs> i don't know that it, it's looking back at that and if he was to hold himself accountable for the things that he said that would have led to war that are patently false every single thing he said was false and is there any way in i mean what it's i don't know it blows me away the times we're living in it does blow away, I think, anyone with a, a grasp on reality and a grasp on morality, but unfortunately, psychopaths are not really known for either. So I think this is why people like this get into those positions, and like a Colin Powell or a John Kerry can tell these lies with a straight face and with enough gravitas to sell it. And I think you asked the right question, who writes this stuff? Because it is the question not of the puppet that is delivering that, that type of speech, it's about who's actually supplying this information. And I think that's more to the point, because that's where the the real centers of power and manipulation are. And uh, we know, for example, in, in, under Bush and the neocons, the uh, the Office of Special Operations or whatever it was called, operating out of the bowels of the Pentagon with uh, Wolfowitz and Pearl and people like that pulling the strings behind the scenes on the intelligence apparatus. And uh, I guess the only question is who's pulling these particular intelligence apparatus strings now, but it's undoubtedly another clique that's uh, working in the shadows. And so I think it's I mean, it's just instructive to look back and look at these speeches when they are revealed to be complete, total, utter hogwash, and to keep in mind that, yes, these politicians delivering it are really just puppets. They are just delivering speeches that have been prepared by other people. They know nothing about what they're talking about, and we have to keep that in mind at all times when we're watching this political theater play out in front of our eyes. Okay, so, and this this is interesting as well. Um, so I'm thinking about... Uh, Mother, th there was a Syrian nun. I don't know if you're aware of this story or not, but um, there was a Syrian nun. Her name was uh, Mother Agnes, and this got quite a lot of traction at the time uh, in the media. Now, she had ev she had uh, gathered evidence, obviously with the help of quite a few people, gathered evidence that 
those chemical weapons attacks, the photos on social media of the children, uh, much of that was, was fake, basically. And she presented that. RT ran with it. A few other agencies might have run with it. And so I was there I was in London uh, in the fall of 2013 or the winter of 2014. I can't remember. But there was a peace conference organized by Stop the War Coalition. And the, one of the keynote speakers, or two of the keynote speakers, were Jeremy Scahill, who is the author of The Dirty Wars, and uh, Owen Jones, who's a columnist for the Independent newspaper in London. Uh, now, both of those speakers threatened to boycott, in other words, not show up and not be the star keynote speakers. And you have to remember, this is before the Oscar Awards, so Scahill was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary for Dirty Wars. So he was a bit of a celebrity at that time. And I think this was might have been in January, I'm not sure, or the beginning of February, but it was before the Oscars. And so Scahill and Jones threatened to boycott if Mother Agnes is allowed to speak and present anything at this major peace event. Now, right away, James, a red flag went up at that point. <laughs> and I thought, why would yeah. you throw a nun under the bus and threaten, you know, throw a wobbler, toys out of the pram because of what she's got to say? <clears throat> that made me really suspicious of some of these uh, mainstream supposed anti-war. As it should, yeah. And and exactly why would you why would you stop someone from speaking at a stop the war conference by saying something that could actually stop the war? Uh, you're right. I mean, and for people who want more on that story, I did interview Mother Agnes uh, back in 2013. So people can go to CorbettReport.com, just type Mother Agnes into the search engine, and uh, they can listen to that interview. And for people who want more on Jeremy Scahill and what he doesn't tell you, I uh, did a report: Secrets of the Dirty Wars, what Jeremy Scahill doesn't tell you, featuring uh, Douglas Valentine. Uh, talking about his uh, omissions from the Dirty Wars uh, documentary. So, um, yes, I'm completely 100% on board with you. And the people who are who are stopping the Stop the War, um, uh, the people who could actually stop the war with relevant information, because it's it's too far out there, we can't associate ourselves with that, those are the real problems, even more so than the people who are actually in favor of these wars, because at least you know where they stand. But the people who pretend to be opposed to wars, but won't actually oppose them, because they don't want to say anything that's too far off the reservation. Oh, that's strange. I might not win an Oscar if I appear on the same stage as this person. So uh, I think we have to be more concerned about those types of people. I, I think it's more of a case of... Um that what Mother Agnes was presenting could derail whatever the U.S. Washington narrative is. And if so, any establishment journalists that are really, uh, their whole career is predicated on uh, getting these sort of inside access to JSOC or inside access to the CIA or etc. Or being a Pentagon correspondent, right? Getting all this inside stuff about stuff that happened six years ago. Okay. Um, so I, I saw it as basically they're absolutely protecting the narrative of Syria because if any dominoes start falling, then sort of the thing sort of gets out of control and then people all of a sudden, there's no way that you can pull people back from that. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree completely. And uh, we've seen this a lot of other times before. I mean, obviously, if people had questioned the fundamental lie of the war on terror, namely 9-11, back at the time of uh, Afghanistan, let alone Iraq, uh, that those wars may not have taken place at all if we could have actually challenged the fundamental basis uh, under which they were being waged. But, of course, the anti-war coalition at that time were afraid to do so. So they, uh, they kept to the more mainstream narratives. And, uh, well, we all know how that worked out for the million dead Iraqi and however many dead Afghanis, uh, I mean, no one even counts them. So, unfortunately, we know that uh, the anti-war movement has been defanged for a very long time and refuses to look at the actual pieces of information that could make it an effective argument. Yeah, and so let so let's here's another one. Okay, uh, and I'm, I'm just looking at Al Jazeera headline, which came out: Is Bashar al-Assad losing his grip on power in Syria? And this is Al Jazeera. So notice the language. Uh, losing his grip on power, right? So it's like it, the same thing they've been doing to Vladimir Putin for the last, uh, you know, 18 months, losing his grip on power. So Al Jazeera, uh, uh, still a lot of people, you know, I s 
I spend most of my time in Europe. Uh, I'm in the U.S. now, but I spend most of my time in Europe and really in a year. And people really believe uh, that Al Jazeera is a, a sort of a neutral party in all this. Now, I'm going to preface this, James, by saying when Al Jazeera first came out of the gates uh, 15 years ago, they seemed to be a lot more doing a lot more independent. I'm wondering, was that a strategy to gain street credibility throughout the Arab world, through the English-speaking world, and then they're they were bombed, the reporters were bombed in the Palestinian hotel in Baghdad and by the U.S., and that was a big controversy and so forth. And all of a sudden, Qatar is becomes is absolutely in lockstep with, with Washington's uh, and, and London's foreign policy objectives. And that this came, I, I guess this would have, it, I, once CENTCOM had got its hooks deep into Doha, that this was just a natural thing that was going to happen. This was a natural evolution that Qatar would become a kind of uh, outpost for the United States in the region. But people think that Al Jazeera is, uh, like they think the BBC is, uh, is, is a great voice of the people and, and a, you know, some sort of just celebrating the fact that they're a state-run broadcaster. Uh, but Al Jazeera is almost like a BBC light now. And now they're trying to propagate this idea that Assad is uh, somehow got a grip on power. I'm going to tell you, from what I've read and the reports that I'm seeing, Bashar al-Assad is like the Donald Trump of politics in Syria. He His poll numbers keep going up the worse it gets. And so he has a, a, a huge backing of the Syrian people because they understand. I believe it's because they understand what's happening. I don't know how you see it. Oh, I I agree completely. I I, I mean, I think the lie of that article is exposed, exposed but in the question mark in the headline. Is uh, Bashar al-Assad losing his grip on power? No, he is gaining power because of uh, the, the Syrian people understand that the country is under attack from outside forces. I don't think... I don't think that's uh, very hard for most people to understand. So obviously, I think his opposition has been galvanized. But the people who were even slightly on the fence about Assad and his role, are, I think, have rallied around the Syrian government as a result of this. So I think the uh, the headline is specious in a number of ways. But you're right. I mean, Al Jazeera. When you look at it, I mean, I I think it's just not surprising that on on t- in times when uh, or on issues where the, uh, reporting the truth doesn't go against the uh, the foreign policy goals of the the Qatari government of course al jazeera will be good and and they still continue to do good work sometimes i mean they yes I was just going to say they had a great documentary on the USS Liberty, which uh, no, no one in the American media would touch with a 100-mile pole, let alone a 10-foot pole. So, yeah, they do some good work. But when it is directly against the uh, Qatari foreign policy goals or interests, of course they're not going to be allowed to report truth. So they're going to fall lockstep in line and, uh, and bash uh, Bashir al-Assad. And, and uh, I don't think that should be surprising to us. It's, um, uh, but it, I think, I, I mean, I look at it as perhaps something similar to RT, which people might remember several years ago, really felt more like a college radio station, pretty slapdash, and didn't have much, I think, editorial policy in general. I mean, they seem to cover everything, including 9-11 Truth, but including crazy far-out stuff. I saw an, uh, an interview on the news with someone talking about aliens and, and all of this kind of stuff. So, I mean, they were all over the place, and I think it was just because it was just a little kind of gumshoe operation. It didn't mean much. But as it started to grow in popularity, I think that's when Putin and uh, and the uh, Russian government basically put more of its meat hooks into it and, and, and crafted a, a certain strategy for it. So now it is just another cookie-cutter network that, yes, in times will will expose corruption in the United States and things like that, but of course it's uh, never going to report on anything contrary to Russian foreign policy goals. Yeah, I, I think when, when RT started, probably it was, a, like you said, a small operation, and and this is, I saw this with Al Jazeera. As soon as they launched their English language um, thing in London at number one High Park Corner, right next to the Lanesboro Hotel, um, once they launched that, they basically poached. And at the same time, the BBC was doing huge layoffs. So guess what happened? All those people from the BBC ended up in Al Jazeera English. And that was in 2004. Around, right around 2004, okay, 2003, 2004, and that's what happened. So, hence, if the if Al Jazeera looks English looks and feels like the BBC a lot of the times, that's because it is pretty 
much staffed with tons of BBC people. Now, the same RT as well, the longer that they're an organization, the more uh, other professionals or people leaving other organizations are going to end up there with more experience. So then the, the, the news kind of, the way it's produced, it, it gets a little bit slicker, things get a little bit more concise, uh, maybe slightly more mainstream. And that's what you get. So I think it's... it's That's right. And let's not forget... Yeah, and we've had several uh, Al Jazeera staff members resign over um, basically a protest over uh, a foreign ministry of Qatar influence over the network, including Aktam Suleiman, who was the Berlin correspondent. And he was right in line with what you're saying with that exact timeline. He said that uh, uh, Al Jazeera was committed to the truth. Now it's bent. It's about politics, not journal- journalism. And he said the decline from 2004 to 2011 was insidi- insidious, subliminal, and very slow, but with a disastrous end. So that's uh, exactly in line with what you're saying there. And again, I think it's uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising that this is how it works. I mean, anything that's going to be state-run is going to fall in line with state interests. But I think there's there's that period of time, that window where, uh, with an RT or or maybe even an Al Jazeera, where it's not it's kind of just a roll of the dice. I don't think they were planning for it to become as big as it did. But when it did, of course, they were going to use that as the propaganda tool that it could so easily be. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's a it's a case of projecting uh, th- that a lot of countries have understood now the value of soft power and the other one turkey has uh capitalized i don't know it's at least a hundred and it's over a hundred million capitalized new english language global network with studios in london uh new york uh washington dc and paris uh, a couple locations they're hiring like crazy right now i forgot the name of it it's a new network i don't know if you've heard about that i haven't no Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So that, that that's happening. <laughs> so they're they're getting into it as well. So that's interesting, and there's a lot of money behind it. So so they're a bit, a bit late into the game, obviously. But you see that with Press TV, uh, RT, uh, now with Turkey, and other countries, China CCTV. Although it's, that's really bland, that one. But um, they, I think they just realized that. Pretty much Britain and the United States have had a monopoly on global broadcasting in the English language since World War II. And they're just breaking into that monopoly. That's what they're hacking in to, to that audience. That's all they're doing. And, and RT, you know, they're like their documentary channel and some of the reports, they're quite frankly excellent in terms of journalism and really enlightening. And I made this case that I wish uh, I wish that some of the American networks would air some of the American-made documentaries that I'm watching on the RT documentary channel. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, this is stuff, especially the stuff with regards to fracking. That it's really important. It's actually urgent uh, that people get that kind of information, uh, and I'm seeing it on their channel, but I'm not seeing it on the U.S. networks. Well. Well, don't worry. The Saudis are going to take out the frackers anyway. So ec- economically, so there you go. <laughs> well, that's another that's another episode we can discuss. So, g- getting back to Syria, okay. Now, what I see happening here, let's let's um, let's let's first actually take a look because this we need to talk about Israel before we talk about the big picture because Israel is quietly, uh, s- supposedly behind the scenes. Uh, of the Syrian civil war when in fact in my opinion they're up to their eyeballs in this conflict okay now uh, in 2000 I think it was you know so Turkey and Israel have actually been working together in the past at least I believe they still are but to diminish Syria's military capability to fight off the uh, US backed uh, terrorist rebels or whatever you want to call them most notably when Israel had used the uh, Turkish air base on July 5th, 2013, was the first time they uh, mounted an airstrike using a Turkish base to hit uh, Latakia with an airstrike. And if, I can't pronounce the name of that air base. It's uh, in, in Sirlik, I think, is the yes. name of the air base. But yes. So that was the first time that happened, and that was the first, or the, that was the, the third of... What in total seven airstrikes since that time that Israel has mounted against 
on Syrian territory, hitting various targets for various reasons. So Israel is effectively uh, providing air cover for just about everyone from al-Nusra to the FSA, whatever you want to call them, but and also hitting his bullet targets, which it, it claims is within its national security interests. Of course. So do you think they're up to their eyeballs in the Syrian civil war? I, I think there's no doubt about that. But I think they've definitely taken a more of a back backstage role in this. I, I certainly don't think that they're front and center, um, at least in the, the, the public op, uh, version of this, this war that's taking place. And as you say, they do things like providing the air cover at strategic uh, times and in strategic places. But um, And also, of course, we've seen not only that ISIS has assiduously avoided uh, actually mounting any sort of operation against Israel itself, but uh, also we had even Haaretz reporting that uh, Israel officially admitted that, yes, they were providing medical treatment to uh, al-Nusra Front members, and but don't worry, they've stopped that practice now, apparently, as of July of this year. So that's the uh, the official word anyway. But so I think a lot of what they've been doing is a lot of back stage shenanigans, um, probably a lot of intelligence uh, charades that we'll we'll never really have uh, direct access to, because, of course, this lines up absolutely perfectly with what Israel has been on the record um, as part of their foreign policy goals for at least three, four decades almost now, um, going back to at least Oded Yunon, where they specifically talked about breaking up Iraq, breaking up Syria, uh, destabilizing um, these these areas with sectarian uh, violence in order to bring about greater Israel and uh, in order to basically destabilize the region and make sure there's no effective opposition to Israel in the region. And so I, I don't think it should be surprising that they're up to their eyeballs in it. But of course, as I say, I think they're, they're a lot more of the backstage of what's going on right now. Yeah, well, yeah, the the Yinon plan, which is was hatched in the 1980s to decapitate uh, just about every, I would say, Arab nation state uh, in the region, and this would give Israel ultimate hegemony in the region. Now, if you look at the secular nation states, which have been toppled uh, in recent history, uh, they are the secular nation states so they're with with sort of a national identity so uh iraq secular nation state put aside what you think about saddam hussein that's neither here nor there syria secular nation state libya secular nation state in fact libya goes a bit further libya was a absolutely a socialist country you know you could even call it communist really a single party you know, autocratic communist state, but it was a secular nation state. So Israel has uh, worked to eliminate some of these countries. Lebanon, its next door neighbor, they've taken a, I, I would say, taken a, a beating over the last 30 years, multiple times. And again, they're a secular nation state. So that seems to be, every, the United States and Israel seem to have a problem with secular nation-state or secular uh, governments. They like military dictatorships. They like feudal mo- monarchies. But any anyone else, they don't like in the Middle East. That's what it seems to me. Yes, yes. well, uh, anyone who can organize and centralize power in autocratic control um, top-down is going to be uh, much easier to control and much easier to influence, blackmail, whatever they have to do, So and, and to remove at opportune times, like happens in Egypt or other places. You know, when it's time to change out the leadership, it can be done nicely and cleanly, usually. So, uh, so yes, I think, obviously, the preference uh, for uh, neo-colonial powers that want to manipulate uh, a region is to install puppet dictators that can uh, easily be uh, manipulated. So I think that's, that's uh, I mean, self-evidently part of the agenda of what we've seen in the last few decades in the Middle East, and it's uh, it's coming to fruition, uh, certainly. And again, all things being equal, it's difficult to see the Assad government maintaining power, um, assuming things are trending the way they are, and we're going to see greater military incursion in Syria later this year. It's difficult to see if uh, how Assad is going to be able to survive that, because undoubtedly, a number of different people at that table are going to one of their their main demands is going to be that uh, the Assad government gets toppled. I mean, what what is what is exactly? I mean, Turkey. Uh, I remember reports. I would say I could cite reports as early as 2011 of camps, upwards of 10,000 fighters uh, over the northern border of Syria, 
encamped in Turkey. Okay, I don't know what they were called at that time. I guess opposition rebels, and so that was a staging ground, a launching pad. So both Turkey and Jordan have are so to the north and to the south of Syria, two launching pads for rebel training, rebel gathering, rebel equipment, and then dispatch into Syria. Turkey has played a huge role in enabling uh, what is effectively uh, a civil war uh, with foreign fighters being funneled into that country. So, uh, obviously, they're, they're coming from Iraq as well, but the, does does Turkey not hold any responsibility or uh, for allowing this to happen or being such an enabler? Oh, Oh, Turkey is is very much. I mean, they're they're definitely eyeball deep. If anyone is in this, and as you say, they were um, absolutely using. They've they've been used. Uh, Inserlik has been used by the Israelis, and now, as of this week, is being used by American F-16s for the uh, the inf- the enforcement of this new anti-ISIL zone. So uh, they've definitely been militarily cooperative, and more importantly, I think more to the point, they have absolutely been central to the supplying of ISIS. Uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that IS IS supply line. Uh, are through Turkey. That's one of the major supply lines. And in fact, even Deutsche Welle had uh, a report where they were filming the the trucks going across Turkey into Syria with all of the food and and, uh, supplies. And even the the people driving the trucks, they don't really know who's picking it up on the other side, but they they suspect it's the Islamic State. Well, of course it is. Uh, Turkey has been absolutely fundamental in in ensuring that uh, that ISIS uh, maintains its ability to uh, to to uh, dominate that region. So I, I think Turkey is one hundred percent involved in this, and I think they have a number of different foreign policy goals that will be served by their participation in this. But I think um, the idea of uh, the, uh, for example, the Iran-Iraq-Syria pipeline or other uh, pipeline projects that would really have enabled uh, Syria to become a bigger player on that table and uh, and leading to the bypassing of Turkey and a lot of uh, infrastructure and, and pipeline projects is one of the key one of the key uh, reasons here, I think we shouldn't overlook the fact that it, it all, so much of this boils down to pipeline politics, and uh, basically with Syria off the table, Turkey becomes a more viable partner for, for example, for Russia with their supposed uh, Turkish uh, Turkish stream bypass of the uh, the South Stream project and things of that nature. No, that's one of the best. Uh, that's one of the best analytical points, James. You just brought up there that I've heard because uh, you're obviously looking at it in a different perspective. You're saying that by taking the uh, the friendship pipeline from Iraq, the Shiite pipeline, as some people refer to it, uh, from Iran, from the gas fields that they share with Qatar through Iraq, through Syria, to the Mediterranean. By taking that off the table, Turkey becomes a player. They can, they've got leverage with everybody. Anyone who's interested in a pipeline from Central Asia to Europe. Turkey has to go through who? Has to go through Turkey, right? That's, that's exactly right. And I think uh, this point has been made uh, a number of times, but perhaps not loudly enough. But uh, William Engdahl is one of the uh, the people that I've pointed to specifically. I had a, a, a podcast, Who is Behind ISIS, that I put out last year, uh, in which uh, uh, William, William Engdahl laid this out, I think, quite quite brilliantly, um, basically showing how the, the, the proposed pipeline projects would have been a absolutely uh, strategic threat to, to Turkey and its its uh, otherwise natural dominance of of that uh that that extremely important corridor. I mean, it's an extremely important transit corridor with so much of Central Asian um, oil and gas being really at the key of of a lot of what's going on in the region generally. And I think that's uh, overlooked by a lot of people who see more of the political side of this. I think there's geoeconomic interests uh, that are at play here. It's also interesting. I mean, I don't want to drag Cyprus into this, but there was a lot. There's a lot of interesting dynamic going on because around 1975, the Turkish government pretty much announced that they're closing down uh, the U.S. military bases, transferring it over to government control, and that was because of an arms embargo that Congress at the time had imposed on Turkey uh, for using American-supplied stuff in their invasion of Cyprus in 1974 but who one of the one of the big cheerleaders that pushed turkey uh to invade cyprus was henry kissinger okay so that again pushing in the back door from behind then you have the policy in the front and so the only was uh in sirlik air base 
was that was the only one that was remained open, and that that was the kind of the NATO beachhead uh, in Turkey in terms of you know air power um, for you know NATO related activities. But um, it, it's it's funny how that that's always remained a pivotal point. So it always makes me wonder, James, that the events of 1974 have led us to where we are in the present. If if you believe in that Zbigniew Brzezinski could play triple chess geopolitics and he knew the moves um, on three different boards ahead in the future, then you'd look at this situation right now that we're looking at with Turkey and Syria and NATO and the United States. And this is a, uh, a, a, a progression of events that is long and in, in the making. I think so, and I don't think we should give too much credit to these planners for being decades out in front. I think that uh, it's more like what Karl Rove said. Um, uh, I can't remember which journalist he was speaking to, but basically said something like, you guys are just analyzing reality, we're creating it. So while you're busy analyzing the last thing we did, we're, we're out and creating something new. So I think a lot of these situations are fluid and developing, but certainly they can be steered in various directions, and uh, no matter what way they play out, they can serve various interests. Because unfortunately, like we were really discussing at the top of the program here, it's that it's very easy to steer uh, certain things in certain directions if all you need to do is destabilize something, if all you need to do is bomb in order to create chaos, in order to get a political agenda forwarded, that can that can take place in a lot of different ways. That can be relatively easy to do. It's the people working towards peace and towards reconciliation and towards some sort of uh, process for bringing people together who have the real uphill battle because that can't be done by just staging a bombing or something. That That's the result of years of hard work and years of evading the people who want to derail that. So and I think uh, Turkey's role in NATO should not be um, should not be neglected in this. I think that's extremely important. We just saw them call an Article Four convention of NATO, basically um, trying to get NATO support for the fact that they're they're threatened by the, what's happening in Syria. And uh, of course, if we saw an Article Five convention, if we saw some sort of attack, some big big scale attack on Turkey, well, uh, you know that they could try to invoke Article Five and try to get NATO involved generally and boots on the ground in Syria. So uh, that's, I think, a real concern for for what's going forward. And unfortunately, we see a lot of signs that things are uh, ratcheting up towards some sort of fall uh, invasion or or some sort of military incursion on a bigger scale. So I think we have to be concerned about uh, the possibility of some sort of staged event or an event that's being allowed to happen uh, to to facilitate that. I mean, the British press have already gone and ran with uh, their, you know, Ice uh, hero SAS sniper saves father and eight-year-old son from being beheaded by ISIS maniac. So that effectively, this is uh, August 11th. British, uh, the Express newspapers, uh, they're basically saying the SAS are in Syria. Essentially, is what they're saying here. Uh, their positions on the Syrian-Turkey border, an elite SAS unit uh, conducting covert patrols. So they're they're basically they're softening up the British public because there's going to be a debate and a vote on this in Parliament in the fall, and it's going to be obviously a close one, but I think they'll they'll get their war. And the, if you notice, the United States doesn't generally move unless uh, the Britain has got their sort of Parliament under control and, you know, reading from the right war hymn sheet. And that's, this is what happened with Iraq, too. If, if Lord Goldsmith, the Attorney General at the time, had basically said that the dossier was dodgy and there's no basis for uh, Britain to be involved in a coalition uh, strike and invasion of Iraq, that would have made it very difficult because then the United States at that point under the Bush government would have it been seen as a completely unilateral action. And so public opinion still counts in this game, uh, funny enough. So what they're doing in the British press is leaking these various stories to soften up the public, and even fake stories. Last week, they this ran in the Daily Mail, all major newspapers, that uh, ISIS was planning a spectacular Boston Marathon uh, terrorist attack against the Queen at uh, Victory Japan Day last um, a couple of days ago. So, and they, they spoke of it as if it was a certainty, as if it was fact. And you look back and you you dig, you drill down, you find out it's completely bogus. But again, this is to win over the British public to basically say we got to deal with this ISIS 
issue. We got to go. Whatever it takes, go ahead and just go do whatever you need to do. Basically. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened in 2013. Um, again, with uh, Obama basically all but committing forces, but when uh, it was rejected in British Parliament, it was off the table. And uh, so, I think it is important to know that big, big scale uh, movements like the Hands Off Syria type of campaign can make an actual difference to this political process, as unrealistic as that seems to a lot of people who have become uh, conditioned to believing that there's just nothing that can be done and basically learned helplessness, uh, which we've been subjected to over the last decade and a half of nightmare uh, of, of foreign policy. Um, but uh, on that very note, I think it's, unfortunately, it's not just the British press. I think the American press is, of course, doing its role in uh, softening up the public. And there was a couple of stories that I saw this week, uh, and I, I don't have them to hand right at the moment, so I don't remember the details. But one of them was uh, one of these, uh, I, I believe it was The Blaze, uh, came out with a, a story where they had been in touch with these alleged uh, ISIS hackers who had uh, issued to the blaze specifically, I think via Twitter or something like this, um, had issued some sort of vague threat saying that, you know, we, we've gotten, we've, we've hacked uh, U.S. military records and we know where these military officers live and we're going to behead people in their homes and things like this. And the blaze is reporting on it breathlessly. Soon, very soon, you will see pro-Islamic state hacking group issues chilling warning to America. And uh, this is on the back of a uh, another uh, uh, apparently threat that uh, that had been widely reported that i believe issued from social media that was uh, actually found to in the end it was uh, just some american i believe an american soldier who had done it so uh, as a hoax and uh, so these types of things are being reported breathlessly all over the place and it's just part of the psychological conditioning to get the public on board and unfortunately we know that does tend to work very well for a lot of the uh, the public so it's up to us to try to ring the alarm bell and show people beforehand what's uh, what they have up their sleeve sleeve oh yeah no doubt the uh the the, the u.s press has gone hell for leather i mean it's non-stop they'll never they'll never stop it's isis brides two days ago uh isis hack um and so forth yeah it's a, it, it's non-stop so they'll garland texas pamela geller we've got so much to deal with in the united states with regards to generating uh ISIS type events, Chattanooga shooting, uh, and it, it just the list goes on. The list just it's endless. It's, I call it the Daily Shooter, James. It's like if I had a newspaper, I'd sort of open a daily called the Daily Shooter. It seems to be about one every day mm-hmm. in the United States. But yeah, um, yeah they're, they're they're definitely Glenn Beck is uh, the blaze. There, it's a shameful organization, but it seems to be absolutely littered with um, ex CIA people. Funny enough. Um, always suspicious of those types of organizations. Yes, ex-CIA, sure, yeah. Buck Sexton and Glenn Beck, and yeah, it's a nice, nice little fraternity there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're all doing very well financially, so uh, we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> doing fine. $90 million a year, I think Glenn Beck took home last year. So, uh, not bad. Not bad. So that that yeah, that that's what we're looking at here. So um, what I'm hoping for, James, is that people will get in touch with their uh, political representatives as they did in August and September in 2013. They will write those letters, send those emails, and say, "Hey, we the last thing we need is another uh, multi-party conflagration, another war in the Middle East. That's the last thing we need." And we have to do everything possible to try to pull back from the from the edge. Absolutely, and at the very least, we have to be the ones to be the uh, the mark for history's sake that uh, the the people were not behind these wars of aggression. That we will not be held responsible for these uh, the the actions of the the psychopathic uh, people at the top who were who are puppeteering and and steering us towards this uh, this disaster because it is a disaster waiting to happen, and it's uh, it it, do- it doesn't need to. It's all senseless, and I think we have to be the uh, the people marking that for for at least for posterity's sake um and uh we, at any rate we can't just go gently along with the the plans that are unfolding right now no you can make a difference i saw it it did happen it happened i saw it uh two million people got on the street in 2003 and it didn't stop the war no one got on the street in 2013 but everyone was phone calling and emailing the reps and it did stop a war so it can't 
we can do it. You can do it. You just have to make a little bit of an effort just to let your opinion be known, let your beliefs be known to those who are meant to be representing you. Uh, you can't... Ha, ha, ha. Representing. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they even consider that. But, but um, uh, James, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I know we could delve into... Uh, nuances and little in idiosyncratic uh, little sort, sort of lagoons uh, that we can discuss on all these little subjects but uh, I do appreciate your overview of this and, and your knowledge and sharing that with our listeners at the Sunday Wire and before we go uh, just explain uh, what are you working on right now what, what are you sort of promoting right now tell us your website and remind our viewers where they can see your work uh, people can go to CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. That's all of my videos and interviews and podcasts, all of it up there available for free download, thousands and thousands of hours now in the archives, uh, including that Mother Agnes interview we talked about, the Jeremy Scahill Report. We talked about lots of other things besides. So I hope people will check that out. And basically my work, uh, the, the principle that I work on is open source intelligence. I think that we have at our fingertips the access to, to more information than, than President or kings or emperors had at any time in the past. And so I think we have to make use of this. And so I, I encourage collaborative uh, learning and, and open source investigation on my website. And uh, and I hope people will just take a look at uh, at the archives there and see what uh, what's available. If they like the work and if you're, uh, if you're a long-time listener and, and want to support the work, then of course uh, subscribe to the website and or purchase a DVD and or make a do donation. I truly do rely on that and uh, I really do appreciate everyone who does help. But if you're new to the site, just, just download, just listen, just take it all in, and uh, if you like it later on, you can support me that way. Okay, you're not kidding there, James, about having uh, access to information more than kings. I mean, right, everyone's got more access than Lindsey Graham does. Um, I could tell you that right now. He doesn't even use email, apparently. <laughs> It's true. What you said is true, James. No, we've got links to all James's stuff on our show page today. And uh, if you send me an email, uh, James, with the Mother Agnes and the Scahill report, I'll include those on the show page so listeners can go and just read that right now. So we'll uh, we'll try to include that too. All right, will do. Thanks so much, James. James Corbett, ladies and gentlemen, from the Corbett Report. Uh, that was our breakdown of what we think is happening right now. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Syria and Turkey, and in the surrounding areas. We hope to, to uh, talk to James in the future as well. There's a lot going on in the world. Obviously, there's no shortage of topics and stuff to analyze. We'll try to do that, but we'll be right back after the break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to get into back into the U.S. political scene, and uh, we've got a few surprises for you coming right up, so stick around right there. This is Patrick Henning, senior host. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right 